Growing in God's Word and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. God wants you to follow Him. He's trying to influence us. to saying, listen, if I can show you this, if I, if I know this kind of stuff, if I've got this kind of power, I, come on. Why, why would you want to shop anywhere else? When you hear the phrase, end times, what do you think of? Through the years, many have speculated and even estimated when they think the end will come. But is it possible to really know what it will be like in the end? Knowing the future certainly can and would affect our lives, wouldn't it? We don't have a a time machine, uh, per se, a DeLorean that needs to generate 1.21 gigawatts. What we have is the Word of God, which also reveals to us the future. I'm Rick Freeman. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Crosswalk. We continue this week to take an in-depth look at the Old Testament book of Daniel in our series entitled, Daniel, Unshakable Faith, Unbreakable Promise. This is our third week in Chapter 7, and there's been plenty to think about. As Pastor Clay explained a couple of weeks ago, Chapter 7 begins the second half of the book of Daniel and deals almost exclusively with prophecy. As we'll hear today, God gave Daniel a vision that showed him not only four kingdoms that would rule on the earth for a period of time, but also a final ruler who would come to power and attempt to stop God from keeping His promise of establishing His kingdom. But as our series title indicates, God's promises are unbreakable. Now, here's Pastor Clay. You remember in Back to the Future, Part 2, where they go into the future because... I don't know, uh, kids have messed up or something. But uh, somehow through that process, uh, they, they tip Biff off to what's happened. And Biff goes back in time. Biff goes back. By the way, did you know, I, I, you know, I thought about, I was thinking about this last night. And, and I looked it up in the movie. I'd forgotten this, but it was 2015. That was the future. It was 2015. <laughs> yeah. That was the future in, in Back to the Future Part 2. Uh, so we're almost at the future. Anyway, Biff goes from 2015, he goes back to 1955, and he gives himself a, a sports almanac. You remember that? And he gives him the sports almanac so that Biff will have the, uh, the, the results of every single sporting event that has happened for the last 60 years or so, 50, 60 years. And therefore, Biff can become rich uh, because he already knows who's going to win the Super Bowl, who's going to win the World Series, every one of them, who's going to win every single game, Stanley Cup, uh, you know, NBA champion. He's gonna, all, he knows, knows all that stuff. And so he's going to become rich. And, and, you know, if you think about it, it, it is kind of, if you knew the future, it would be interesting to see what you would do with it, you know, and, and how it would affect your life. In the movie, of course, Biff becomes an even darker bad guy, he just becomes a rich one. Um, but, but knowing the future certainly can and would affect our lives, wouldn't it? Don't, I mean, don't you think in some sense? Well, uh, we don't have a, a time machine, uh, per se, a DeLorean, uh, that needs to generate 1.21 gigawatts, but what we have is the Word of God, which also reveals to us the future, and that's what we're looking at in the book of Daniel. We're looking uh, at a man who wrote this book, uh, you know, five, six hundred years 
before the time of Christ, so we're talking 25, 2600 years ago, and yet through him, God reveals to us events that, that were future for Daniel, but, but as we'll see today, he begins to move into events that are future even for us. We're in Daniel chapter 7. If you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to open there. We'll have the text on the screen as well, but you can open to Daniel chapter 7. We have been working through Daniel chapter 7 uh, several weeks. It's a very important chapter, right? It's a very important chapter. It's a, it's, in some sense, it's a transition chapter. It basically marks the halfway point of the book of, of Daniel, and it begins to move into almost exclusively prophecy. Before, you know, in Daniel, we had some prophecy in, in chapters 1 through 6, but we also had, you know, great stories like, you know, Daniel in the lion's den and... Uh, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and, and uh, them not eating the king. So we had some great stories like that that, that uh, showed us their, uh, their unshakable faith that they had. But chapter 7 really begins to move into this unbreakable promise, the truth of God's word that comes out over and over again uh, and the promises that God gives us about the future. Don't you think it's kind of exciting that God has given us some promises about the future? All right, good. I'm glad you're excited. Uh, so we've been looking at Daniel chapter 7. There's a lot to see. I'm going to do a brief review because uh, last week I, I took a break and, we, and shared a message about why we go. We, a team of us just got back from Haiti, and I just wanted to remind all of us why we go out there. And I hope uh, you were here last week and heard that message, or if you weren't, I hope that you've gone online and listened or watched uh, that message uh, because uh, I hope every one of you are prayerfully considering, all right, I'm going. I got to go. I got to go here. I got to go there. And I got to go everywhere. That's what God's word says. So where all am I going to go? I hope you uh, had an opportunity to see that and that you're prayerfully uh, taking some time to think about that. But we talked about that last week. Uh, the week before that, I was, uh, we were gone. I was in Haiti. The week before that was Father's Day. And we looked at uh, two verses in Daniel chapter 7. So it's been like a month since we looked at this first part of Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, do a brief review, and then the revelation will continue from there. You with me? All right, we're going to see how smart y'all. I'll see if y'all can stay with me here today because it's going to get a little, little technical at times, and, uh, and that's just, just the way it happens uh, in prophecy a lot of times. But Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, here we go. Now, it came about in the days... Oh, wait, maybe I should get in Daniel. <laughs> I, uh, I uh, hold that thought. I was in Isaiah. That's, which would have been good too, Isaiah 7, that would have been good, but <laughs> all right, here we go, now we're ready. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed, and then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Got it? Had a dream, vision, writes it down. Daniel said, verse 2, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and had the wings of an eagle. And I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground, and uh, made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird 
The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had a large and it had large iron teeth, devoured and crushed and trampled the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until the thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flame, flames and its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. As I said a month ago when we read this for the first time, that's a lot to chew on, isn't it? There's a, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of visual uh, imagery in there that we had to kind of break apart and look at. And, and, and if you're with, that, with us, you, you heard some of those things. Uh, but just just remind you real quickly, very briefly, uh, why do we do this? Why do we study these hard passages? I mean, this is kind of, you know, these animals and they look freaky and they got horns and they got eyes and they and they all kinds of stuff going on. Why do we even bother with this kind of stuff? And and if you, you remember, I told you then that, that we do this um, because uh, uh, the the reason we do it is because we have to know. I gave you, as a matter of fact, I think I gave you three reasons: to instruct, to influence, and to involve us. To instruct us in. In, in, in what God is doing and what God is saying. Because as I said a moment ago, the more we know God's word, the more we begin to know God. And even in prophecy, even in the hard passages, we begin to, um, we begin to understand things about God that maybe we don't see as clearly in, in perhaps some of the other passages. One of the things that we certainly see is that God is large and in charge. God is giving us information ahead of time as to what will happen, giving it to Daniel and then ultimately giving it to uh, us, to instruct us, to influence us. God doesn't make any secrets about this. God's not you know, trying to pull a bait and switch or anything. God wants you to follow him. God wants me to follow him. God wants us to be fully devoted followers of Jesus, sold out for the cause of Christ, living for his honor and for his glory and ultimately for our good. And he doesn't try and disguise that. He's trying to influence us. Just saying, listen, if I can show you this, if I, if I know this kind of stuff, if I've got this kind of power, I, come on. Why, why would you want to shop anywhere else? To influence us and to involve us in the work that God is doing. Uh, some of you heard me say before, from Genesis to Revelation, from the front of the book to the back of the book, it's really the same story. It's the story of God redeeming mankind, God trying to bring people, sinful people, all of us broken and sinful people into a relationship with him. And he has invited us and commanded us to join him in that, uh, in that work that he is doing. And it is work, right? I mean, it's, it's work to try and talk to people about what God has done in your life or to, to go somewhere, some other part of the world and try and share what God has done. But to involve us in the work, that's the reason we study passages like that. And then after we talked about that, uh, three or four weeks ago. Then we got into the revelation. Not going to go into all the things again. You can always go back and listen to that message. But I do want to just remind you 
of, of what Daniel saw. He sees these four beasts, okay? I'm going to give, and just to remind you of those interpretations. He sees, he sees a lion, which represented the Babylonian Empire. And uh, let me say this, and I may say it again or whatever. You have to connect Daniel chapter 7 with Daniel chapter 2. You can't separate Daniel 7 from 2 because 7 helps explain 2, 2 helps explain 7, and there's, there's, a, there's a thread that connects those two. And we get a little more detail about the kingdoms, I think, in some respects in chapter 2. But the bear, uh, that is the Babylonian Empire. I mean, I'm sorry, the lion. Next comes the bear, which represents the Medo-Persian Empire. And it's historically, we know this is what happened. Babylonian Empire was then conquered by the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, after that comes the leopard. The leopard represents Greek Empire. Leopard represents the Greek Empire, which conquered the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the fourth beast, which we which we uh, pointed out uh, a month ago. Interestingly enough, the fourth beast is is not compared to an animal like the first three are. That's an indication of how different this this fourth beast is. But the fourth beast, um, at least partially, represents the Roman Empire. the The Roman Empire. The Romans conquered. The Greeks. And so uh, Daniel sees that. Uh, that's part of the vision. Daniel would have made a connection between, cha- chap- between this, his vision and Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2. Uh, he just, it, you just couldn't escape it. And so that's, that was part of the revelation. Now, let's, let's, let's see the revelation continue. Let's go on. Okay, you ready? Verse 11. I'm going to read now to the end of the chapter. Y'all with me still? Haven't lost you yet. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. It basically means those empires, that part of them lived on in the next empire. I think it would be the basic interpretation, their culture uh, some of the inventions they came up with or, or that sort of thing, uh, those empires uh, lived on, and even some of the uh, people. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And I approached one of those who was standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Verse 17, these great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. And then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled the remainder of, with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head and, and the other horn which came up and before which uh, three of them fell. Namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. The time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. 
Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. Verse 26, but the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. And then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. And a lot to read, a lot of stuff in there in verses 11 through uh, 28, a lot to take in. But one of the things that you begin to discover, <laughs> I, I don't know if y'all have thought about this or not, but every time I read this, this, this idea keeps coming back into my mind. Uh, one of the things that you discover when you read prophecy in the Bible, and that is that God is not really big on cliffhangers. Uh, God's not really big on surprise endings. Uh, he keeps telling us over and over and over again how this whole thing is going to turn out. Even here in verse 11, as we start, we find out what happens to this boastful horn before we even get into who or what this boastful horn is. Before we even know who or what it is, he's already telling us, that dude's, that dude's out of here. I'm taking care of all this. God's not much on cliffhangers. He is, on, he is, he is about letting us know that, that God is in control, that God is ruling and reigning, and that God has purposes and plans that he's going to work out in his timing. So in verse 11, we see this horn that shows up and uh, this little bit of description that's going on with him, this brief idea about what happens to the 12. And it's clear that this little horn, which he refers to it in verse 8, uh, this, this little horn or this other horn, this boastful horn, it's clear that Daniel wants to know more about this. It's, it's, he's connected to this fourth beast. And it's clear that Daniel wants to know more about this fourth beast. There's something different about him. But before... God takes him there and takes us there. Uh, Let's look at verse 13 and 14 and and what he has to uh, say there. Daniel is looking in in verse 13. He says, uh, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man appears. In his vision, he sees one like a son of man. Now, uh, this phrase, uh, son of man, is a, is a phrase that is used fairly frequently uh, in the Old Testament, uh, at least occasionally. It's the, the prophet Ezekiel used it a lot uh, to refer to himself. Uh, even Daniel, in the next chapter, in chapter 8, Daniel uses it once to refer to himself. It's just a, it would just be a common way of talking about mankind. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, son of man. In a, in a sense, all of us are uh, sons of the original man, Adam. Uh, we're, we're all descendants of Adam, uh, so in that sense, we're, we're sons or daughters, if you will, uh, of man. He's using the term uh, generically. But in verse 13, it seems clear that Daniel is using this term in a different way. Daniel realizes that there's something different 
about this guy. Notice, notice it says, like a son of man. Do you see how it said, put that in front of Like a son of man. Daniel's, Daniel says uh, he seems to be a man, but, but there's something different about him. There's something unique about him. He's not like any other son of man. And then um, in verse 14, I guess it is. No, still in 13. One like a son of man, notice this, he was, behold, he says, with the clouds of heaven. So Daniel sees one like a son of man, and he sees him coming with the clouds of heaven. Y'all see that? Interesting, if you were with us earlier, a few weeks ago, when we looked at those first 10 verses, we, and I even read it this morning, uh, Daniel says that the four beasts that he saw came where? Where did they come from? Anybody remember? That's right, they came up out of the sea which represents the sea of humanity. In other words, those four beasts, those, those four kingdoms had a human origin. But he says, this son of man is different. This son of man comes with the clouds. In other words, he's coming from heaven. In other words, there's, man has nothing to do with this guy. He's a man, yes. He's a flesh and bone and blood man, but man has, man has nothing to do with his origin, that he is coming from heaven. It's pretty easy from our perspective Daniel was looking ahead, but it's pretty easy from our perspective looking back that Son of Man represents Jesus Christ. It's referring to the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, uh, by the way, the, this kind of helps support this idea, and some of you may not know this, but Son of Man was Jesus' favorite uh, reference to himself. It was his favorite name for himself. Did you know that? I counted them. Just, uh, just the, I just gave up at the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew alone, Jesus uses this phrase to refer to himself 31 times in the 28 chapters of Matthew, just in that, in that one book alone. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. Daniel sees this one like a Son of Man coming. He's not, he's not of human uh, origin. He is born of a virgin, is what we find out when we get to the New Testament, and, and Isaiah talks about it as well, that, that, it is, that he is from heaven. He is the God-man. He's man, yes. Like I said, he's flesh and bone, but he's more than that. Here it is, folks, just to sum up the theology. Uh, the Son of God has existed from all of eternity. It's what Scripture teaches. The Son of God has always existed as part of the triune Godhead. But 2,000 years ago, the Son of God stepped into our world. He took on flesh. He became a man so that he might eventually go to a cross and be the sacrifice, the redemption for your sins and for my sins. He did that. He became a man. He suffered and bled and died so that you and I could be redeemed. Daniel sees him in his vision and, and goes on in verse 14. He's, uh, he sees him or at the latter part of verse 13. Uh, he came and, and uh, presented himself before the Ancient of Days. We looked at that a few weeks ago in verses 9 and 10. But the Ancient of Days, it's, it's God Almighty. Basically, we're talking about, we're, we're talking about God Almighty uh, in Daniel's vision. And to him was given this dominion. Watch uh, the, the latter part of verse 14. Watch this. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Do you notice the threefold repetition? Redundant. God's being redundant. Why, yes, I believe he is. I think God's trying to say something to us. I think God's trying to say that, hey, Daniel, you know, these, you know these kingdoms that Nebuchadnezzar saw in chapter 2? And you know now you've seen them in chapter 7? 
I've already told you, those kingdoms will come and go. They will rise and they will fall. But there is coming one like a son of man whose kingdom will never be destroyed, who will never fall. It will be an everlasting kingdom. God is trying to help Daniel and us understand that, that, that God is in control and that his kingdom will rule and it will reign, he will reign forever and ever. You know, if you think about it, that, that's just mankind in general. The truth is, from the beginning of time until whenever time runs out, Anything that man does, no matter how great or spectacular or famous it may be, eventually it turns to dust. Eventually it goes away. Eventually it loses its luster or, or, or you know, the person is not as... It's just, it's just the way of the world. It's just the way things happen. Now, besides the, the prophetic truth here that we're reminded of and say, yes, that's, that's right. That's good news. Besides that, ladies and gentlemen, can I just say to you, there's a, there's a practical spiritual application for our lives. And that is, no matter what you and I do with our lives, materially, worldwide, no matter, no matter what kingdom we build, you understand what I'm saying? Eventually it turns to nothing. It's all going away. I, so many people live their lives in, in what I call the pursuit of possessions. Do you know what I mean by that? The pursuit of possessions. Now, those of you that know me or, or have heard me say this on several occasions, there's nothing wrong with having stuff. Nothing wrong with us having stuff. Nothing wrong with us having nice stuff. Most of us have nice stuff. Nothing wrong with having stuff. But what is wrong is when the stuff begins to have us. Do you understand what I'm saying? When, when the pursuit of that stuff or the desire for that stuff or the, the, the longing for that stuff, when that stuff... Whatever it is materially in this world, when it becomes the priority of my life, when it supersedes the kingdom of God and and God's purposes and God's plans in my life, when it does that, that's when it's out of kilter. And God is reminding us, no matter what you have, no matter what you do, no matter how famous you become or how rich you become or how big your house is or how nice your car is, no matter all, all of that stuff will eventually just go away and only the things of eternal value will last. That's exactly what Jesus was saying to us. And again, he doesn't beat around the bush. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19, look what he says. Don't store treasures for yourselves here on earth where moths and rust will destroy them and thieves can break in and steal them, but store your treasures in heaven where they cannot be destroyed by moths or rust or where thieves cannot break in and steal them because your heart will be where your treasure is. You understand? You can't, if, if your focus is here and climbing the corporate ladder or, or, you know, having whatever, if that's where it is, that's where your heart will be. That's where your priority will be. That's where your mind and your heart will go. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't store up for yourself treasures here on earth because it's going to turn to rust. Moth is going to eat it. It's all just going, thieves are going to steal it. It's just going to go away in the whole scheme of things. It's just going to go away. And so instead, store up for yourself treasures. In heaven. Listen, I know, we're, I know we're off the prophecy just a little bit, but remember, part of the purpose of the prophecy is to help us understand what really ought to matter in life. That's part of the reason God is giving us this, this prophecy, to help us understand that that's, that's big picture stuff. And sometimes I get so focused on little picture stuff that I forget what really matters. Okay, okay. Back to the prophecy. In verses uh, 15 through 17... Daniel's given an explanation of what the four beasts are. Now, I already went through those 
uh, a month ago with you in verses 1 through 8, as we just read the verses, I just went ahead and gave you uh, that, you know, the, the lion represents the Medo-Persian Empire, the, the bear, the, uh, or the lion represents the Babylonian, so on and so forth. I already gave you those, and again, you can look at chapter 2 and the reference to that and, and how that fits in. But in, in 15 through 17, Daniel is given that understanding uh, about what those four beasts are. Then, in verse 18, he says, But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. So again, in verse 18, we're coming back to the same idea again. God's coming back around again. No cliffhangers here. Uh, you know, don't forget. Here's what's going to happen. Yep, all this, 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 all this, but here's what's going to happen. Uh, the kingdom will be forever for all ages to come. And then, in verse 19, here we go. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, in which devoured crust trampled down the remainder of its, with its feet. Daniel wants to know. He said, I, I got to know more about this. Okay, God, I know you, you're, you're, you're going to win. Your side wins. I, I got all that. But there's something about this fourth beast. I want to know more about him. There's something, he, he's different. This fourth beast is different. How is he different? Well, one of the things that we can say about the fourth beast that uh, it, is, it is different in power. Now, we already looked at and established the fact uh, from chapter 2 and from chapter 7 that the fourth beast, historically, from our, from our perspective, we're looking back, right? Y'all with me? With me? You need to get up and do jumping jacks? Come on. We already established that the fourth beast, as we look back historically, is who? Rome, the Roman Empire. The fourth beast, and that's exactly how it happened historically, Medo-Persians, uh, uh, conquered the Babylonians, the Greeks conquered the uh, Medo-Persians, and the Romans conquered the Greeks, and then the Greeks eventually just kind of fell away. They weren't really conquered necessarily by anybody, just fell away about the 5th century AD. So we already know that that happened. We know that's a historical fact. And so uh, Daniel's saying, you know, what is it about this fourth beast? Part of the difference is its power. And, and there's no question, the Roman Empire historically was far more powerful than any of the other kingdoms. Now, the other kingdoms, they were powerful in their day. They were the, the Babylonian Empire was a great and vast empire, the largest of its kind up until that time. Uh, it was vast. It was rich. It was powerful. It was ruthless at times. It was all of those things. But none of those other empires could hold a candle to the Roman Empire in both the territory that they covered and in longevity. The, the empire went on for hundreds of years compared to some of the other empires that Time was relatively short. So it is different in power. But this fourth beast is also different in position. Let me see if I can explain to you what I mean by that. As I said a moment ago, fourth beast, as we look back historically, Roman Empire. Right? We know that. We know when it came into existence, somewhere around, yeah, arguably somewhere around 197 B.C., and fell somewhere around the 5th century with the fall of Rome. That's, well, that's kind of argued, but some, somewhere in that area, we, we know that. Right? All you history majors. But, as Daniel continues to look at this fourth beast, he sees this fourth beast waging war against the saints, and I'll talk about them hopefully in a moment, waging war against the saints and doing battle right up until the very end when God returns and establishes his kingdom. Right? We just, we just read that a moment ago. So the question is, how can the fourth beast be the Roman Empire, which went out of existence somewhere around the 5th century A.D., 
How can it, how, how can it be that, but then it's also still around, Daniel's clearly moved into end time stuff. How can it still be around when we get to the end times? The answer is that the fourth beast represents two different positions on the timeline of human history. The fourth beast was the, the Roman Empire. But the, the connecting thread, you with me? Sam, with you. The connecting thread is right here in verse 20. It says, The meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which three of them fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Find it. Thus he said, verse 23, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, will devour the whole earth, tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. There's the connecting thread. So, the implication is, from what Daniel's saying, that from this kingdom, this fourth beast, which is who? Out of that fourth kingdom, that fourth beast, Ten kings or kingdoms or nations will arise. So the ten horns represents ten kingdoms or ten nations. And, and he says that. That's not, I'm, not, I'm not interpreting that, folks. That's what he says right there, right? So the ten horns that Daniel sees are ten kingdoms, ten nations, ten kings that rise up out of the old or the ancient Roman Empire. Okay? Let me show you real quickly a, a map of Europe, if we can get an idea of that. Um, basically you're looking at this part of Europe was, that was pretty much what, what the Roman Empire conquered. Um, also a significant part of North Africa. Um, they began to push east, but, but basically all of Europe uh, became the dominion of the Roman Empire. So the connection seems to be, and you know, not, not everybody might be agreed on this, the connection seems to be that geographically, out of the empire that the Romans controlled, there will rise up a ten-nation federation, if you will, or ten uh, super super nations that will come together and rule over all the rest of the nations. If you were with me, with us when we went through chapter two, I mentioned that a lot of uh, Bible students believe that something like the European Union, either the European Union itself that exists today, or something like that, is what Daniel may be seeing here: some conglomeration of European countries that come together and kind of operate as one. You understand what I'm saying? I had a, I met with my mom's financial advisor uh, this past week, and uh, in the course of our discussion, we were talking about. Uh, the debt crisis, particularly in Europe. Now, we got our own debt crisis here in the United States, but it's talking about the debt crisis in, in Europe and uh, some of the countries there, how uh, there's virtually no chance that they can ever get themselves out of some of the debt that they are in. They are, they're so upside down in their debt, some of these nations can't get themselves out of it. And we we're talking about that we have a scenario in place today, right now, we have a scenario in place where literally some of the stronger uh, European nations, such as Germany or Italy, uh, or maybe Great Britain, that some of those nations could actually purchase the other nations that are in such debt. They could basically come alongside them and say, listen, you know, we're going to pay off your debt, we're going to absorb your debt, and you, know, you can, however they say it, however they do it, you can kind of be your own little thing, but, but you belong to us, Greece. <laughs> Not picking on Greece, they're just one of them that's really... But you have in place today a scenario where other countries can literally by some of the ones that are in such. So it, however it happens, I don't, I, I'm, I'm fine leaving that in the hands of God, but however it happens, you end up with apparently 10 nations that, are, that rise up and make kind of a confederation together. 
And then out of that, Daniel says, another will rise up. This other horn, this little horn in verse 8, uh, this boastful horn in verse 11 is the Antichrist. We've moved into a, a different period of time. He rises up, and we, we know that from the book of Revelation. We know it from, from uh, Daniel chapter 2. Um, I'm just filling in some gaps for you right now. This other boastful horn, this little horn, this other horn, apparently, this, uh, however it looks, folks, however it comes out, will rise up out of that ten-nation federation. He will overthrow three of the, of the horns, three of the nations. He will conquer them, take over them. And after he does that, he will thereby quickly rise to total world domination as a result of his control of that, those first three nations and then the ten-nation federation and then ultimately, ultimately the entire world. So uh, we moved from historical, da-da-da-da-da, and we've moved suddenly into the future. So there's, there's two different positions that the fourth beast is part of on, on the lot, timeline of human history. Okay? I've got a thing out I was going to draw you, but I, I don't have time to do it. Notice in um, verse 21, uh, I kept looking and the horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Um, the saints, pretty obvious, the saints represent those who are followers of Jesus Christ. They're believers in God. Uh, the question is, are, uh, is, it, is it referring to the church or is it referring to people who come to faith during what's called the tribulation period? Uh, some of you know what that is if you've been with me in this study. Uh, there's nothing in the text, quite honestly, that tells you either way. They're clearly saints. They're clearly believers in the Lord God. We don't know whether it's the church, as the church exists today, or whether it's people that come to faith during the tribulation period. Uh, if you know my theology or if you were with us when we did the book of Revelation a few years ago, uh, you know, it's, it's my uh, expectation that the church, the, those who are part of the body of believers now here on earth, will be raptured or snatched out before this point and will be in heaven awaiting the end of the tribulation period. And that these actually are people who come to faith during the tribulation period. Uh, I'll throw this out there to you. It's something we've talked about in the past, but uh, you may or may not be aware of this. But during the tribulation period, during this terrible time, the literal seven-year period of time that will exist on the earth, uh, Billy Graham says that he believes more people will come to faith during the tribulation period than all the rest of human history combined. Uh, it will be a time of an enormous revival, so to speak, people coming into a relationship with God. It will also be a very terrible time, and many people will die uh, for their faith in God and, and for other reasons. But, but the saints are the followers of God. The, the uh, uh, Antichrist wages war against them. Uh, he is the little horn, the little beast. Um, and then in verse 25, he says, I will speak out against the most, he will speak out against the most high, wear down the saints, the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Basically, that's the Bible's way of saying three and a half years. When you time, times, and, and half a time. Half of the tribulation period, that literal seven year period of time, and Christ comes to power, we do know based on the book of Revelation, that about halfway through, um, the, the, the really heavy persecution will begin against those who are followers of God, against the nation of Israel, all that sort of thing, until God puts an end to it. That's the point. Until it comes to it. And that's where we come to in the last part of the chapter, verse 26 
through 28. Uh, I love how it says in verse 26, but the court will sit for judgment. And the, in the end, we're, given, we're com- coming back to that same idea, uh, the sovereignty and the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven. God is back in control. So let me give you real quick the result. Here's the result of, of this revelation where we finish up with um, in this whole chapter. And, and he's, got, he's got more to say about it in chapter 8 and more. You know, it's going on. Daniel is getting this from God because God wants us to get it from him. But here, here's the result. The two parts to it, really, I would say. First, trust. Ladies and gentlemen, God wants us to trust him. God wants us to trust him. Now, before you, in your mind, say, well, I do trust God. God wants us to trust him with the little stuff. Do you understand? You know what I mean by that? In other words, all of this, uh, can, can we agree this is big stuff? I mean, this is end times, and this is nations rising and falling, and this is, you know, armies, you know, battle going on, wages, you know, God Almighty against the forces of darkness, and, uh, you know, all this stuff is going on. I, so God is saying, listen, listen, if, if I got this kind of stuff, if I got end time stuff, if I, if I, can, if I can reveal to you what's going to happen in the end time, if I've, if I've got your redemption covered by the sending of my son to redeem you and to pay for your sins, if I've, if I've got a place prepared for you that, that, you're, that you're going to live for all of eternity, if I've got all of that covered and I, I can manage all of that, do you think you could trust me with finding you a job or a spouse or giving you joy in your life? Or a purpose? Do you think maybe I could handle that that little stuff? Now listen, I know it doesn't feel little when we're in the middle of it, right? Man, it doesn't feel little at all. And so we struggle with this idea of, of trust. We, we, we're not sure how we're going to pay our bills or, or end up going on a vacation, so, so we don't trust God enough with our finances to do what he says to do with them. Or we're, we're, we're so afraid that, uh, that we're not going to end up, that we're going to end up alone or something. So we don't trust God to bring somebody to us in his timing, what, what he wants to do. And so we end up going out and trying to find one on our own. We don't think that he's going to come through, uh, with, uh, with giving us the words to know how to say what we're going, what we need to say. And so we never trust him enough to step up and share anything about our faith. Or we don't, we're afraid that he won't, take care of our fears, and so we don't trust him enough to, to say, you know what, I'll go to the other side of the world to tell somebody about Jesus. Trust. God is saying to you and me, hey, hey, I got this. If I got this, I got this. I've got you. Trust me. Trust me. It's not just about a history lesson or even a future lesson. It's not about walking out of here with our heads swimming saying, okay, what, what, that horn, I, I don't, something... No, it's not about that. It's about being changed as a result of this and saying, I, I really can trust God. God really, this stuff is unbelievable. And, and, I, and it's not just stuff we're spouting, you understand? There's historical, empirical evidence that supports every one of these. The, the four kingdoms came to, into power just as they said they would, just as God predicted they would. They went out of power just as God predicted they would. And so we can trust that the rest of it is going to take place just as God said. Trust. Second result is triumph. Triumph. Um, in, um, in verse 18, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Um, go, several, several places it goes on and says that the saints, the saints, the saints. Hey, folks, you understand what's going on here? You understand why you keep bringing up the, the saints and keep saying this in here? 
God has his kingdom. God has always had his kingdom. God has always had authority. God has always been on a throne. None of that has ever changed. But God wants to share that with you and me. God wants us to be a part of his kingdom. And listen, I don't mean that in some uh, heretical, uh, unbiblical way. We don't become gods, okay? We don't become like God. But God has always been in charge. He has always had his throne, his dominion, his power. But he has sent his son to redeem people that could join him in this eternal relationship, this eternal kingdom that I don't know what all it's going to be like. I just know it's going to be good because I know God is good. And God wants you and me to triumph. He's saying, I got this. You can trust me. And look at this. I got the victory. Already secured it. All you got to do is walk in faith in it. And watch me bring triumph in your life. And listen, here's the good part. Triumph now, right now in your life. You don't, do y'all ever walk around? Oh, poor me. Oh, life is so bad. Life is so hard. Why did, why did I have, have that boss? Why did I get that flat tire? Why do I, y'all ever get that way? Maybe everybody does in some sense. You know, we get kind of down in the mouth. I think it's the way the old saying goes. Kind of down in the mouth. We all, I'll get that way from time to time. God's saying, nah, you, you, you can live in victory in your life. You can live with the assurance that, that I got the big stuff and I got the little stuff. And I'm walking, I'm, 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 I'm fulfilling my purposes and plans in your life. And you can live with absolute assurance that I've, that I've got this. Not only, and, and so not only that, not only you can have victory. Not, by the way, can I just say this? One of the greatest, one of the greatest, maybe the greatest advertisements for coming into a relationship with Jesus is the way we live our lives. Uh, it's one of the greatest and one of the worst, right? So it's like, oh, why did this have to happen to me? Why did this, why did that, why did that? But when we can say, I don't know why this happened to me, but I know God, I know God is good, I know God has purposes and plans, and I'm trusting him. Now, when we say that to a neighbor or a family member or a friend or a coworker. I don't know if they're ready to believe in Jesus or not, but I know that they're sure ready to see what you've got. Why, why is that? How can, they have, how can that person have joy? How can that person have peace? How can that person have confidence in their life? Have you seen what a mess their life is? But they, they seem almost giddy about it. And I don't mean fake. I don't mean putting on, you know, I'm, I'm talking about living in the reality of who God is and the fact that we can trust him and that we can triumph in him. But not only that, not only this life, and then we'll finish with this, but clearly what he's saying in Daniel 7 and what he's going to say again in Daniel 8 and, and on and on it goes, what he's, what he's saying is, I got this. This is going to turn out. You know, I used to tell people for years, some of y'all heard me say this. I, I've read the back of the book and we win. Right? I've read the back of the book and we win. But listen, there's one thing you, when you re- read prophecy, you learn. You don't got to wait till you get to the back of the book to learn that. God's saying it over and over and over and over and over and over again. You're going to win because I've won. Just trust me. Just walk with me. And you're not going to believe what you're going to see. Here it is. Revelation chapter 22. Close it out. Verse 1 through 5. This, this idea of what Daniel is talking about. Here's the culmination of it in Revelation chapter 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, and yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. 
and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be, watch this, any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. As Pastor Clay said today, God's not much for cliffhangers. God wants us to know how all this is going to turn out so that, as Pastor Clay reminded us, we can trust in God and triumph with God. Just as those four previous kingdoms came and went, everything else man does or builds will come and go, including the Antichrist and his kingdom. We still have several visions to see in the book of Daniel, but in chapter 7, God makes it crystal clear that in the end, His kingdom will be established and His people will be with Him for all of eternity. We're glad you spent some time with us for this week's Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our everyday lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh. But instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone and everyone who is looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org.